We uh, come now to the scripture. Let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us now on this wintry day that you would enable us to, to um, be warmed uh, in our own minds and hearts by your spirit. And uh, that you would come to us in a way now that enables us to listen, uh, to meditate, to reflect, to know, to consider, to embrace these things of Christ and to believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 through 25. Matthew in chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And now during this Advent season, since we had basically finished First Thessalonians, which was our undertaking last or earlier in the fall, um, we've come to this Advent season. We've taken up various designations for this one who was born. Uh, we took up this designation, the son of David. We took up this designation, the son of God. We took up this designation, the son of man. Now in this morning, I want to take up this name, Jesus. Uh, Joseph was betrothed, as you know, to Mary. Betrothal meaning he was legally bound to marry her. They had yet to be officially married. They had yet to be intimate. They were betrothed more than what our engagement would be, somewhat less, if you will, than actual marriage would be, this legally bound to marry betrothal. Now, Joseph had received what must have been the devastating news that Mary was pregnant. You can only imagine the heartbreak that must have been to him. You can see by his response, his character. You can see by his response, 
No doubt the care, the love he had for you. You can see by his response how heartbreaking this must really have been because, because he, could have, he, he could have devastated her with this news. He could have brought deep embarrassment upon her because of this pregnancy. Because you see, he knew that he hadn't been intimate with her. He knew this child wasn't his. But he decided that he would quietly divorce her. He wouldn't bring disgrace, if you will, upon her. So, so that was in his mind. So you can just imagine his state as this angel comes to him and gives him different news, news that he could not have even thought of. And that is that this child comes not from Mary's unfaithfulness. It wasn't a disgrace, if you will. It wasn't dishonoring to him or to her or to God, but rather Mary was with child by way of the Holy Spirit. And this child would be Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> Think about that. On the one hand, he's overjoyed by the fact that she hadn't been unfaithful. She really does love him. And, and, and all of that, there is no, no disgrace. But then to think about the very fact that this child to be born would be Emmanuel, God with us. We don't know really how much uh, uh, Joseph was able to connect the dots between the prophecy that is quoted here uh, from Isaiah... We don't know exactly how much he understood of all of that. Matthew wants us to understand that, that this is something related to that as a prophetic word from Isaiah. You might remember the situation that was King Ahaz and, and then armies were coming against him and he was afraid. And, and rather than trusting God, uh, he was going to align with a, a foreign nation in order to protect him. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, don't worry, Ahaz, God will protect you. God will keep you. In fact, ask him for a sign. And, and arrogantly, uh, King Ahaz says, no, 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 I can never do that. I can never ask him for a sign. And Isaiah, of course, saw right through that. The reason he didn't want to ask God for a sign was because God would give him a sign. And that sign then would say, I'll be with you. I'll protect you. You don't need to align with any of the nations. And Ahaz didn't want to do that. You know, it is in your own life. I know it is in mine. I have my plan. I could pray about this, but God may mess up that plan. And so I would just, I'm just going to go through with it, right? And and so we, we do that. So Ahaz was there and probably in a deeper way, I trust and many of us might be in our own lives. But, but there he was. So Isaiah said, well, I mean, God's going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin will give birth to a child. And before this child is old enough to discern right from wrong, you'll see the devastation of the nations that are plotting against you. Trust him. Isaiah, I mean, Ahaz, of course, didn't. Honestly, we're not quite sure how all that played out in the days of Ahaz. We trust there was a virgin at the time. She gave birth to a child, not through a virginal conception like Mary, but, 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 but she did give birth to a child. This child was born, and before he was too old, we saw the devastation of the nations, and, and, and he would be a sign that God was with the people. But now it's deeper than just a sign. As Joseph receives this word, it's not just a sign. It's it. This child isn't just a sign that God is with us. This child is God with us. This child is the very presence of God, Emmanuel. So, so that's going all through him. This, this child, we know, we, we've talked. Not only in the last few weeks, we've talked for the last 25 years. 
about the fact that his child is God with us. God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel. This, this, this mystery, if you will, of the incarnation. One person. Two persons. One person. Two natures. Divine and human. And it isn't that the divine has sort of swallowed up the human part of Jesus. Or it isn't that the human part has swallowed up the divine. It isn't that the human part is hidden in the divine or, or, the, or, or, or the divine part hidden by way of the human. Any of that. It isn't that they're mixed together in such a way that he's just an oddity. I mean, he's just a, an other. But he's a person. God. Man. And you say, well, how can that be? And I say, you're asking the wrong person. It's a mystery. The apostle writes to Timothy and he says, here's the mystery. He appeared to us in the flesh. Mystery. The incarnation. And though we can't explain it, it explains everything. J.I. Packer, in a book that's falling apart, in a book called Knowing God, quoted from a book a few weeks ago, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones' study in the Sermons on the Mount, and I made mention that that book changed my life. Uh, this one, too. Uh, it doesn't matter, I suppose, but of the two books, besides the Bible, that have changed my life, uh, probably impacted my life the most. It was that one and this one. But this book, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. And Packer, in a, in a chapter called God Incarnate, uh, makes mention of the fact that, let's face it, what we believe as Christians is strikingly odd, different, if you will. We believe that this man, God, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, we believe that he did great miracles, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, made the lame walk, forgave sins. We believe that this Jesus, you see, um, rose from the dead. We believe this Jesus in dying for us, died in such a way that he paid for the sins of sinners. We believe he lived in such a way that his righteousness is imputed to all who believe. We, we believe this. He, he's such a man that if you trust in him, you trust in God, you see, and you will be reconciled to God. All of this we believe, you see. And Packer says, well, that's not the strangest of all. What's the strangest of all is we believe he was God in the flesh. This incarnate son of God, begotten, not made. That's what we pronounced this morning in our profession of faith. Begotten, remember, like produces like. Begotten of God, eternally begotten of the Father, always existing, always the Son, now comes to take on that which he wasn't before, which was human, if you will, to take on human flesh. And so Packer writes this. He says, but in fact, the real difficulty, because the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, doesn't lie here at all, that is with the resurrection and all that. It lies not in the Good Friday message of the atone, not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. 
the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was man made, was God made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he thus and that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It is here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many uh, of those who feel the difficulties of uh, mentioned above about the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection have come to grief. It is from misbelief, or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation that the difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. And they do. I mean, once we get a handle on the fact that this Jesus is God in the flesh, then everything else makes sense. Everything else is possible. Surely God made man can do miracles. Surely God made man can forgive sins. Surely God made man can intercede for us with God and be our mediator and all of that. Surely he can rise from the dead. Surely he can pay for our sins. I've mentioned before, and this is my only Larry King quote, because I think it's perhaps, well, in my view, maybe the only valuable thing he said. I've listened to him that much, but of all the things. But once he was asked, I said this before to you, it's maybe coming to mind. Once he was asked if he could interview anyone ever in history, who would it be? And he said, Jesus Christ. And then they asked him, what would you ask him? And he said, I would ask him if he was virgin born. Because you see, if he was, then it means everything. And everything else falls into place. So Packer puts it like this. If Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable, godly man, the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work would be tr- truly mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the Father is agent in creation, through whom also he made the worlds, it is no wonder if, flesh, if fresh acts of created power marked his coming into the world and his life in it and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. If he was truly God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than that he should rise. Tis mercy all. The immortal dies, wrote Wesley. But there is no comparable mystery in the immortal's resurrection. And if the immortal Son of God did really submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death would have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. If it is all of a, it is all of a piece and hangs together completely, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else the New Testament contains because it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And so you see, when the angel comes to Joseph, he says, I want you to give him this name. I want you to give him the name Jesus. 
I suppose they could have called him Emmanuel. That would have been a tough one growing up, wouldn't it? It probably would have revealed too much too soon. So he gives them the name Jesus. Now, Jesus, in the days of Joseph, was a relatively common one. If Joseph and Mary had bought a book of popular baby names, um, Jesus would have probably been in there, especially for Jewish people. Because, you see, Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew for Joshua. Now, what we have here is that he comes, the angel, to Joseph and says, name him Jesus because for he will save his people from their sins. Well, uh, Joseph would have been going, got it. Because Joshua means God is salvation. Joshua means God saves. So he says, well, of course, that's what we'll name it. We could call him Joshua, but, but we're, you know, we're here, so we'll call him Jesus. That's the name that he'll be known by because he will in fact save his people from their sins no 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 joseph might have thought of joshua the great conqueror after moses you remember joshua took the people into the land and as the author of hebrews lays it out he took him into the land so that they would have rest there rest from their enemies but he said they didn't enter that rest oh they had the land and they they sent out most of the enemies, but, but still over time, as we look at the history of Israel, we realize they lost that land that there wasn't rest. That Joshua didn't bring them salvation. There was another Joshua, a post exilic Joshua, and he was a high priest. Remember, the Israelites had been exiled and then allowed to come back. And when they came back, Two very important people who had come back was a king, if you will, a ruler named Zerubbabel. And then a priest, high priest, named Joshua. And you remember that they rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't as glorious as the previous temple had been. And as we know, Zerubbabel and no one after him was ever really enthroned because Israel was always Occupied the temple, never really had its place again. And now Jesus comes. He will save his people from their sins. He is the one who will enable his people to enter this peace, this rest of God. And he's the one who will be the very presence of God. He's the one who will be the very temple. He said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And I said, well, it's taken like a long time to build this thing. How can you do it in three, three days? Well, the gospel writer says Jesus was speaking about his body. He would rise. His body, we, would be the temple. And he says he'll save his people from his sins. What people? Whose people were they? Well, Joseph may have heard that as saving Israel. That, that was sort of the mindset at the time. He's going to save Israel, his people. That's his people. But, but really, if you think back through the Old Testament, all the way back even with Abraham, you find it was more than Israel who would really be saved. The promise to Abraham was one would come from his seed, and this one who would come from his seed would bless 
all the families of the earth. Everywhere, you see. We read the prophet Isaiah. He says, a light has come to the Gentiles, the nations. Right? We find even in the, the teaching and the life of Jesus, he comes to seek and to save that which is lost, even this Samaritan woman, even this Canaanite woman who comes to him and says, my daughter has a demon. And, and Jesus said, well, I've come for the, for the tribe of Israel, for the family of Israel. And she said, but, but, but even dogs get crumbs from the table. And he said, oh, I see your faith. Your daughter is healed. Even then, you see. And then the great commission, as he gives, he, he doesn't say just stay in Jerusalem. He says, go into all the world. In fact, when he meets with his disciples after his, after his resurrection, right before his ascension, what does he tell them? This is wait in Jerusalem. You receive power on high so that you may be my witnesses where? Where the paraphrase is, you can be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We see that's what took place, you see. We see it. In Acts 2 even, there are Jewish men from all over the place. Spoke all kinds of languages in, Pente- in, in, in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And, 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 and as the disciples start to worship and praise God, they hear, all these people do in their own languages, and they take, they take this word back. And then, of course, we, we see it as, as the church moves out of Jerusalem by way of persecution into even Samaria. And then we, well, then we see how it is that uh, the, the Holy Spirit comes to Peter in such a way that convinces Peter that this gospel is for the Gentiles as well. And then a special apostle, a Jew named Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, goes to these Gentiles. Who are these people whom he's going to save? Well, people from all over, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, everywhere. But we also see there's some definiteness here. His people from their sins. Jesus knew he had a people. He said, my sheep hear my voice. Those are my people. Those are the ones I've come to seek and to save. Those are the ones who will hear my voice. These particular sheep. On the night that he was praying to his father right before he was betrayed and crucified. He he says, I'm praying, Lord, for all those you have given me. Those very ones. This definitely says, I'm actually coming and I'm going to save them. Uh, Paul writes later about this group he refers to as the elect of God, chosen by God. The very ones Christ saves. All of that group is identified by one, by one characteristic. They all believe. They all believe in this Jesus. And they all believe because they've all been born again. Born by his spirit. So this great expression, he's come to save his people from their sins. Now this word save is is one that, that has a couple of different nuances there. On the one hand, it means to be made whole again. To, to be restored, to be made whole. But the second is that before that can take place, there must be a saving. That is, there must be a rescue. There must be a deliverance. And so you get this sense that sins bind us from God in such a way that we can't help ourselves. 
And someone, this Jesus, must come and rescue us from this slavery, from this bondage, from this imprisonment to sin. And it's quite clear as the angel comes to Joseph that only Jesus can do this. He will come and save his people from their sins. You get the sense he doesn't need any help from anyone else. He will come and he will save his people from their sins. And that's quite understandable. Who else has been able to do it? And you see this this restoration because of sin. You see, we were created, you know this, we were created in the image of God. We were created to reflect him, to glorify him, to honor him as God, to give him thanks for who he is and what he's done and how he's made us and how he leads us and how he directs us and all of that. That is the biblical definition of human flourishing, reflecting God, glorifying God. We're made in his image. What other image would be higher and better for anyone than the image of God were to reflect him, his wisdom, what better wisdom to receive and live under his power, what better power? And he says, this is how you were made to be, but, but you've fallen short of that. Romans 3, you know this verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed glorifying him. And the degree that we've missed it is the degree that we don't flourish as human beings. And you see, what happens when, when sin happens is that first we incur a debt. Sin means that we haven't glorified God. We haven't done something, so we've incurred a debt. There's something that we haven't done that we must do that is left undone that we need then to do and we haven't done it. And the problem is if in fact we're, we're enslaved by this sin, it means that we won't do it. That we can't do it. So we're really, really stuck. We're really, really Trapped. Who's going to do it? Who's going to pay that debt? And then secondly, of course, when sin exists, it means that there's enmity, there's hostility. There's enmity between us and God. In other words, we don't want to do it. Even though he loves us, and even though he's never hurt us, And even though everything he desires for us is perfect and best, still we don't want to do that. Why? Because we're locked into this sin, this sinfulness. It comes, as you know, from Genesis 3. It comes, as you know, from the temptation. You can be like God, so we want to set ourselves up to be him. And we want to go by our own wisdom and our own strength and our own power and all that. And he says, that is death. It means that We're hostile, really, to God. 
And sometimes that hostility is, is expressed violently, if you will, very obviously as we come against God. Sometimes very subtly, we sort of make God in our own image. We make God the way we want him to be, the way we think he ought to be. And so we say we believe in God. Well, what's the God you believe in? Well, it's this kind of God, and that's not God. So we want that kind of God, you see. And so we kind of hold him at arm's length that way by being very religious. And all that still is this enmity, this hostility between us and God. And we're stuck there. And so we're separated from him. We need to be reconciled to him. And then, of course, this hostility goes the other way. Because of our sin, then God has a hostility towards us. It's called wrath. The wrath of God is God's reasonable just response to our rebellion against him. And the end result, of course, of that is death. No life. Because life is from God. And so, so the life we're living is really death if we're not reconciled to God. So the question is, who can save us from this? Who can rescue us from this? Who can stand for us before God And pay the debt by doing it. Who can stand for us before God? Who isn't hostile to God? But loves him. Who can stand for us before God? Whom God will receive. Because his wrath isn't against him. There's this one Jesus. God will receive him because he's his son. God will receive him because he's his son. He loves him. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I sent him for this very thing. So he's authorized to do this. And he's my son. He volunteered to come and, and, and he'll do this, you see. He's, he's me in the flesh. God in the flesh, the son of God. I'll receive him. But he's also exactly like you in every way except without sin. You see, here's where we need to to, to distinguish between human nature and sinful nature. Human nature doesn't have to be sinful human nature. Well, it does now since the fall to all of us. But but, but, but a day will come, of course, when the nature that we have as human beings as we're resurrected and all of that won't be sinful at all. With Adam, it wasn't sinful. A day will come with us. It won't be sinful. It became sinful because of Adam's sin and then in us. But, but, But now, you see, this one has come with a human nature that isn't a sinful nature. And so he'll be received by God. But he understands us perfectly. You see, he can represent us perfectly. And because he's man, he is one who then can take the guilt of our sin upon himself and die and rise, you see. He's this perfect mediator. God. Man. Meets in Jesus, you see. And thus he's the one, the only one, really, who can save us, who can rescue us. And all that, you see, he he brings life to us. He's the giver of life. He's God. He brings life to us. And so what we really need then is a heart to respond to him. And so he gives us new life so that we can respond. He changes us. When he comes to save us, he says, I'm going to take out this heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh so that you can Respond to me so that you can 
Love me breaks the power of canceled sin. Charles Wesley so wonderfully wrote, right? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He cancels it, pays the debt of our penalty, breaks its power so that we can respond to him. He saves his people. He saves us. How do you know that you're one of his people? How do you know that you're saved? It's because you hear his voice. Not audibly, I suppose, but you hear it through the scripture. You hear it through preaching. You hear it through friends who speak to you. Jesus, yes, I get it. I understand. He's the one who's the savior of sinners. Yes. I hear him, you see. So we're really saved from God, by God, and we're saved for God, because you see, he brings us to himself. He makes us his very own. He adopts us into our, our, his family through our elder brother, if you will, Jesus. He, he, he adopts us into his family so that now we really belong to him. So all by way of God's promise, all by way of God's covenant, when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, there was this Passover meal. They would be thinking rescue. They would be thinking enslavement. They would be thinking someone dying. On our behalf. Jesus. Was with him. You know the covenant of God is such. That there are within it blessings and curses. God says to us. If you're faithful to the covenant you'll be blessed. If you're unfaithful. Then the curse will come upon you. The blessing of God went something like this. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, only the way that Hebrew can be poetic, every line says essentially the same thing. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It repeats itself. It explains itself line by line. And the whole point of the blessing is the blessing of God is that he will be with you. That's the blessing of the covenant of God. You know that when Jesus was on the cross, he took the curse. And we know that he took the curse Because he said, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why is your your countenance not upon me? Why am I not blessed as I've always been? Because he was God-man. He took the penalty of our sin. And as 
God, man, he was worth us, valuable, worth us all. And so God received that curse, that forsakenness as our curse so that we might be blessed, so that we might know the blessing of God. So the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is the curse I'm taking for you that you might be blessed. This is my body. In the same way he took the cup after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, that is to say, I'm taking the curse so that you might be blessed. Who else can do that? Who else can be received by God for us? Who else can promise the blessing of God. Jesus. He will. Has. Saved his people. From their sins. He is. Saving. His people. From their sins. A day will come. When in the very. Presence of God. We'll know that salvation in all its fullness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing, simply amazing that you've done this for us in Jesus. So we pray that even now you would take this bread and this juice, set it apart in such a way that we'll know that we're in the very presence of God that in him in Jesus by his spirit God is with us because God is with us we know that we're blessed we know that he can only be with us God can because Jesus mediates, intercedes, stands in our place, and we in him thank you. God, in the mystery of the incarnation, we pray that we may have great confidence to come before you, to be assured of forgiveness of sins, to know your presence. This we pray. In Jesus' name.